follow us on social media. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the tag team podcast. On Twitter, at tag team podcast. On Google Plus, the tag team podcast. Email us, at the tag team podcast at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail on the tagline. 6016544 tag that's 6016544824 you can also listen on soundcloud by searching the tag team podcast you're listening to the tag team podcast and now the special presentation. Here are your tag team podcast host, Jeff Jones and John Burke. Howdy! It is a fine Texas howdy. Thank you. Appropriate for this Texas edition of the tag team podcast. It is. Since all the tragedy in Texas, we're going to add a little more <laughs> tragedy. Hey, we planned this before the hurricane. Maybe this will make people feel better about their Texas lives listening to this. Well, we don't have it so bad after all. Well, yeah, unless they did have a tragedy. We're five. Yeah, five's... <laughs> Five's a record. If they've got five, we'll just shut down the podcast and say, you know what, you win. You have us beat. That's for sure. Well, we had a good vacation. Yeah, a little R&R time away from the norm of the podcast weekly duties. It was mainly my fault, but yeah. I wasn't going to point any blame, but yes, it was. I'll take the blame on this one again. <laughs> I caught a little bit of the sickness during the changing of the weather and just got extremely busy the first time. It's been interesting. Speaking of the busy, the cheerleading thing's quite interesting. Still doing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're uh, asked her how long to be toting everybody around. And I think she said uh, up until the end of October, unless we won some matches. So you're like that episode of South Park Baseball where they're playing to lose. Come on, lose. Well, I'm actually rooting for the time clock. <laughs> And disappointed every time the ref waves his arms in the air and the guy in the little, what is that, his little castle up there, the announcer's booth. <laughs> yeah, announcer's booth. Timekeeper guy, he stops the clock. Like tonight, it was 60, 59 degrees and everybody was freezing. Nobody brought anything to bundle up with, I guess you could say. Rookie mistake. Oh, yo. It didn't bother me. I'm fat, so. I was, <laughs> you know, like a bear in wintertime. It didn't really bother me too much. Football weather people, you gotta break out the proper attire. Yeah. Regardless of what it was two weeks ago. I'm kind of glad I didn't go back and buy the extra pop-up tent and the solar panels and all that stuff because I'd have been disappointed. Yeah, it might have been good for next summer practice or something, but yeah, I don't think you'll get too much use out of it now. No, and I'm hoping they'll cheer basketball. Usually basketball has cheerleaders. I'm hoping they'll cheer that, kind of keeping the motion and then maybe keep them something active over that period in between cheerleading. Maybe I can get them in gymnastics or something. There you go. Keep them busy convince them they're good in track and field let them run yep they're always looking for people for track and field well they're elementary school so they're still bit out cross country i ain't trying to travel <laughs> my luck my young gonna be a fast one i'll have to travel everywhere <laughs> and i'll be doing tag team podcast angrily from the van down by the river <laughs> So yeah, so yeah, but you know, other than that, it, it was not as bad as I thought it was. I knew when I was smaller, I, I played football for my local city. I didn't remember it being this bad, but I guess when you're playing, you don't really remember too much. No, you don't look at it from your parents' point of view. Just you get to go out there and do what you do. You get yelled at, of course. Discipline. Come on, Jones, get off the line. <laughs> I don't. Again, not to play ignorance. I wasn't here for the practice. <laughs> 
Yeah, a lot of those days. The coach lived two houses down from me, and I'd usually miss the ride. So. Nice. Man, I figure that one out. Not sure how that happened, but whatever. Might have been trying to tell you something. <laughs> um, get it together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you need to clean your life up now. You're 11 years old. <laughs> Probably so. That's been the most of my three weeks. And then, of course, next week, like I told you, we'll be doing something special. So I will not be here again. So we'll have to figure out something, another special or something for a two-week run for our podcast audience. Just play Backlog Catalog. That'll work. We just play a random episode. I'll never know. We'll mix mash episode four with 11. Just mix up the matches like Vince likes to do and play them and see if they notice. Just call it a best of and just play all of them. Yep, exactly. That'll work. (laughs) You ready to do some recapping? Yeah, let's do some recapping. Previously on the Tag Team Podcast. On the Tag Team podcast we had a wedding that's pretty much it yay it was an interesting wedding our gifs are up but that was it that was it you want to listen to it it was episode 17 go back do it listen some subscription love some downloads some stars on the apple podcast now it's no longer the itunes yeah i can't call it that they'll see you i don't know why they changed it i guess they didn't want to get it people mixed up with the itunes music not podcast i think itunes podcast was too many words for the Apple users. I think they needed to dump it down a little bit more. They just call it an Apple podcast. And eventually they'll just copyright the word podcast and we'll all be in trouble. I'm surprised I didn't do that a long time ago. Ain't got no money yet. We just call it Wrestling Talk. <laughs> wrestling Talk for your mobile device. Now we've been used to and now we're ingrained in using podcasts now. It's just automatic 10 cent every time we say podcast, podcast, podcast. It's 40 cent already. They're smart innovators. Speaking of innovators, this week we're going to do a special and it's on two different videos. One's a lot shorter than the other. The main one was Heroes of World Class, the story of the Von Ericks and the triumph and tragedy of world-class championship wrestling and the other one was an espn 30 for 30 von eric's wrestling the curse what a tearjerker yes both should probably be watched with alcohol nearby or kleenexes or i don't know ice cream for some people maybe yeah well it's not a lifetime movie john different folks do different things we might have some lady listeners all right well it's definitely not a lifetime movie but they can make it one yeah yeah you know i guess toward the end it did kind of get a lifetime of stuff retell the whole thing from fritz von eric's wife's perspective yes lifetime movie Bam. one of these actually are on youtube at least to date if you're listening to this later on it may not be but as of recently it was espn's 30 for 30 short is out there on youtube heroes of world class well when we first started our podcast it was out there on youtube so you can give it a gander and maybe by the time you're listening to this it might be up there again by somebody but as of to date it is no longer the link that we had when this podcast started are you telling me i need to upload it to youtube i I am not condoning or, I don't know, whatever the opposite of condoning is. Because that's the only, that's the only way anybody's going to find it. I, trust me, I scoured the web trying to find this thing. Like I said, it was up there when we first started, but we have so many listeners just that went right to it that YouTube's like, whoa, what's going on? And they took that down. Yes, a bunch of people in one place, something illegal's going on. Has to happen. Exactly. Which I don't agree with. And I believe this originally came out in 
2006, so it's a little dated as far as recent thoughts on the issues, but since it's all in the past anyway, it's still pretty relevant for the most part. So we'll go to break, and with that, we'll come back and do a little territory talk. Hi, I am Bosley, and I am here with Hulk Hogan. Hulk, thanks for being part of this promo for the new Tag Team Podcast Shop campaign. Sure, no problem. For each shirt or item sold, a portion goes to the Tag Team Podcast to help fund the web bandwidth cost. We have shirts starting at $24.49. Wow, that's unbelievable. If you sold all those shirts, where's my percentage? Hulk, you don't get a percentage. Some of the money goes to the Tag Team Podcast since they are their shirts. Those are my shirts. I've got a right to sell them. Do you want to cash me outside how about that? That's not what I want. Look, man, I made a mistake. I apologize. I was a real horse's ass. That's what I thought. To visit the Tag Team Pod Shop, go to shop.spreadshirt.com slash the Tag Team Pod Shop, all one word, or click on the link in the description of this podcast or on the side of the web page. Do it, brother. I guess I blew that one. It's okay, Hulk. Our listening audience are used to it. That's for damn sure. Let's talk May 1984 timeline with territories. Territory. Wrestling territories. And for you youngsters out there, <laughs> wrestling territories is something that may be foreign to you, but at one time in the United States alone, there were 25 or 30 wrestling territories that were headquartered around the country. Territory top Texas. I got Armarillo, Houston, San Antonio, and Dallas. Armarillo. That was a song, right? Back in Armarillo. Take me back to Armarillo. Uh, possibility. I always think of Galveston, but there might be one about Armarillo. It's a great sour drink about it. Oh, Armarillo. Pretty sure there's a country song about it. Something going through Armarillo. I don't know. Should have prepared more, I guess. <laughs> Armorello, a long-time hotbed of professional wrestling, the Armorello, Texas scene is celebrated for its rugged, innovative style. Throughout the first half of the 20th century, mad action was presented in West Texas by such promoters as Kay Farley, Dory Denton, and Doc Sarpolis. But it was the coming of wrestler-turned-promoter Dory Funk Sr. and his sons Dory Jr. and Terry which turned the scene into a mecca and cemented the region's place in history. By 1980, however, attendance was down and the Funk Brothers sold their family business to longtime family friends Dick Murdoch and Bob Windham, a.k.a. Blackjack Mulligan. Unable to save the circuit, Wyndham and Murdoch shut down the long-running promotion. Still, the contributions of the Amarillo circuit continue to be felt today. Good old Terry Funk. And next up, we have Houston. You might remember this person. Houston Wrestling. Headed by wrestler-turned-promoter Paul Bosch, Gulf Athletic Club Incorporated produced one of the longest-running television shows in the history of the business entitled Houston Wrestling, and was a long-standing member of the National Wrestling Alliance. In the waning days of his promotional career, the well-respected Bosch, well-regarded as an innovator and fair payoff man, booked talent through outside offices such as Jack Edkison's Southwest Sports Incorporated, Joe Blanchard's Southwest Championship Wrestling, Bill Watts' Mid-South Sports Incorporated, and Vincent K. McMahon's Titan Sports Incorporated. After retiring, Bosch ended his career by briefly working as a consultant and on-air personality for Jim Crockett Promotions Incorporated. Thank you, Bosley. Is he gone? 
Is he back? Yeah, he's back. But is he gone? Okay, he's gone. So yeah, I convinced him that two's better than one, so I'm paying him two nickels and convinced him it's better than one dollar. So yeah, he's back. All right, listeners, we need you to go to the tag team pot shop and buy a shirt so we can pay Bosley to stay. Yeah, two nickels adds up after a while. It does, especially all the work. Texas, huge. And since Bosley's back, this will be Jay's last episode, and he did not earn the rest of his letters, but here's his research on San Antonio. San Antonio. The Southwest Championship Wrestling brand came into being in 1978 when Joe Blanchard stopped booking talent in San Antonio through Jack Atkinson's Southwest Sports Incorporated and started booking on his own, with the top flight television taped at the junction and major shows at the Hemisphere Arena. The Southwest Group, for most of its run a member of the National Wrestling Alliance, was one of the more creative and violent groups of its era. The first promotion to run a weekly show on the USA cable network, the promotion broke apart in 1985 following a power struggle between founder Joe Blanchard and one-time business associate Fred Behrens. There is no Vince here in 1984 yet, but the battle is between Joe Blanchard's Southwest Championship Wrestling and World Class Championship Wrestling. Fritz SWCCW is winning that one pretty handily as in 1986, it would be purchased by Texas All-Star Wrestling. That brings us to our documentary's territory, Dallas. Vince is running TV, but this is one place where he's not winning the war. Vince's mistake that cost him for the longest time into the Attitude Era, he tried to oppose Fritz and Sons better known as the Von Erichs. Without getting the Freebirds or the Von Erich kids in Texas and couldn't draw into the big market until well into the Attitude Era. Of course, we'll find out in this documentary that David Von Erich did pass and that played a role into the demise of WCCW. But the big deal at the time after that was Kerry Von Erich winning the NWA world title from Ric Flair on May 6, 1984 at the WCCW. W Parade of Champions. David Von Erich was set for the spot prior to his death. The match was deliberately cut short in order to film the backstage celebrations that lasted longer than the match itself. Kerry also won the six-man title that same night as Mike and Kevin and Fritz beat the free verbs and Fritz gave up his share to Kerry. The show drew approximately 32,130 people and at the time was a third biggest attendance in North America. Recapping the documentary Heroes of World Class, the story of the Von Erichs, and the triumph and tragedy of World Class Championship Wrestling. That was a mouthful. Yeah, it is. It's like... <laughs> I mean, they just call it H of W-C-S-O-T-V-E and T-W-C-C-W. This would have maybe fit on one line if they would have done that. How about Heroes of World Class, the Von Erich's Triumph and Tragedy story of W-C-C-W? There you go. I think <laughs> Triumph and Tragedy of World Class was actually stolen by WWE's DVD. Whenever I was searching the full title, that would come up occasionally just because it had the Triumph and Tragedy part on there. Oh. 
Damn it, Vance. Yeah. So the main players in this, of course, the surviving Von Eric, spoiler, Kevin, and the booker, Gary Hart, one of the wrestlers slash managers, Gandar Akbar, one of the Earl Hepners for the promotion, David Mann, the referee, the wrestler and brother of one of the other bookers, John Mantell, brother of Ken Mantell, the ring announcer turned preacher, Mark Laurent, and the commentator, Bill Mercer, and the producer, Mickey Grant, and they had some pre-recorded footage from back in the day of Chris Adams as well, that they played intermittently throughout the documentary. If you want to own this documentary, settle for used, you might find a good deal. It's at Amazon currently for about 12 bucks, and if you somehow hear this before we release it, you can get it currently bidding at eBay for $2.79, but eBay prices, there's one on there for $10.91, I'm guessing free shipping, probably not, $20.95 free shipping, and then the extraordinary price of $50 free shipping, or the new one on Amazon for $99.38. I'm actually trying to snipe that bid as you're going through that. There you go. Pick, pick, pick. <laughs> They're shipping from Florida, then you can forget about it. Yeah, it's not arriving for a while unless Salvatore Balumbo to build you a boat to float it on. Balumbo. Oh, there's one for two seventy nine. That's the bidding one, but it ends soon. Now that's the director's cut. I think all of them are the really the director's cut. Everyone I saw at the bottom of the picture, either that or it's the standard stock photo. They all say director's cut. I don't know. Edited only an hour and fifty minute version. <laughs> I like how this five dollar and 50 cent where he was a world-class kind of gives you the michael myers look instead of an actual wrestling thing it kind of looks like a michael myers title yeah that's accurate that's what it looked like pretty much a tragedy and horrors figure shadow standing in the hallway all right so just to give you a heads up it's actually up ten dollars and fifty cent it's no longer two dollars and something the listening power of our audience not even released this podcast yet and they're already bidding on it mm-hmm. best chance is probably you'll run across it at a pawn store or a flea market or something like that probably i think i saw somewhere a long time ago probably before 2010 it was at a best buy for 14 bucks so you might find it maybe at an ollie's or something one of those discount big lot stores you never know i guess it's time to make a trip to ollie's now that you mentioned that yeah i always have good stuff cheap at least that's what they tell me first thing they teach us in this documentary is the rise of world-class championship wrestling. Apparently the director, Brian Harrison, was from Chicago and that's how he got into this world-class championship wrestling from his local Chicago affiliate. And the first person we see is David Manning. He tells us, if you want to tell a wrestling story right, you gotta tell it from the beginning. Gotta have a good story. Exactly. They go on and they tell us about Von Eric, the original Von Eric grandpa, and how well he used to treat his boy, Fritz. And yeah, I don't think there's probably too many Father's Day reunions once Jack got old enough. No, definitely not. I believe it was mentioned that his grandfather, speaking of Kevin, Kevin spoke about his grandfather taking his dad to illegal fighting rings, and they would fight for money. Broke the first rule of Fight Club. Hence why Texas became one of the toughest territories to wrestle. 
Council in. Yeah. See, and I believe the territories there were the NWA. Uh, of course, the WWF was there. Uh, the AWA. I think those were the three that were spread around the country into many cities. And they would run their own local wrestling shows under their own regional name, but still using the NWA banner. Got to get your 3%. No, we'll talk about percentages when we get to Ric Flair. <laughs> So we start our story off with the three brothers, Kevin, Carey, and David, who were all high school athletes. And as they got older, they started learning from their father how to wrestle the business moving forward. Bookers, we had Gary Hart and we had Ken Mentel. The producers for the WCCW were Mickey Grant and Bill Mercer. And those powers combined started WCCW. Which according to David, only had like four employees. Yeah, they were a very shoestring budget, that's for sure. Which was great because they were making money. Yeah, that's my people to pay at the end of the week. Mm-hmm. I believe reading through, uh, once they started the WCCW, Macklemore owned Dallas and Fort Worth and El Paso, and he had championship sports. Mickey Grant, who was a gopher for Studio 11, he approached the wrestling powers that be with the new technology for their show since the older studios didn't have the good cameras, the bigger microphones everywhere, and they weren't able to get the expressions of the face. But with no avail. Fritz never returned an answer to Mickey to say yes, go for it, or no, don't go for it. Yeah, Mickey said he learned the microphones from Don King. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah, only in America. American Dream. No, I think that's Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> but he is from Texas. It's true. So, a TV studio of Mickey started working with Channel 39, which had all this technology he was speaking about originally to Fritz, and Mickey had spoke to an executive producer that was looking for a show or a filler to fill a time slot that would get high ratings. And he knew that they would, this wrestling thing from all the live events so far, that ratings would be not a problem. So he waited to speak to the executive. And finally, after Fritz seeing the potential revenue income of having a second TV channel and getting a little more exposure, he went ahead and he gave Mickey the okay to take a chance and have their TV show on Channel 39, which was the Christian broadcast. Network. CBN. God and Jesus, take a seat. We got a body slam this guy. <laughs> It aired November 15th, 1981. And more that I listened and kind of listened to Mickey talk and Bill Mercer talk, it seemed like Mickey was the brains behind the production. He's, as I said before, he's the one who wanted to bring in more microphones, bigger, better cameras, actually cameras that were on your shoulders instead of the cameras back then was you had one camera pointed toward the ring unmanned, and then you had one cameraman that did the angles for the whole arena. With that, you get better sound quality. You would get better shots of the wrestlers since it wasn't live post editing wouldn't be a problem and they had a better quality product yeah so got slow mo instant replays very 80s yeah i think they said the budget for that was around five thousand dollars so i'm not sure what five thousand translates into today's money but it seems like less than probably what vince had oh um yeah i'm sure since he owned the garden yeah did you like the ring barriers that they had it was just a thin piece of rope keep the crowds back yeah that'll do it that's all they needed it's the 80s yeah who's gonna jump the rope nobody's gonna jump the rope not like they do now they're crazy yeah trying to stab you and knock you upside down for no reason knock you off a ladder eddie girl or give you a low blow randy orton <laughs> yeah i miss those days where you could actually get on stage and you could sing with the musician and all that stuff where you considered a terrorist not be escorted off the stage and ejected from the concert <laughs> if you want to call that escorted you go right ahead 
<laughs> Not my kind of thing. They compared the bookers and the territories to La Costa Nostra, the mob, basically, mafia, talking on politics, the area, bookers, basically, main duty was to make sure the wrestlers wanted to come in from other promotions and had the okay to do it, and they tried whenever they could to get the NWA champion to defend in the town that they were promoting and booking in. Yes, bookers were the mob. Everybody tells it Jim Ross and or just anybody that was around the territory days is that's how they compare it to. I believe that. Everybody wanted to protect their own territory. I guess you can look at it like that. Yeah, I'm hoping with if Glow actually does good, which I don't know if Glow did on Netflix, maybe they'll have some kind of mob wrestling type thing come on or something like that. Maybe. I'd love to see a WCCW one. Stubborn Fritz not wanting to expand like everyone else wants them to. Spoiler. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> so upon finding this information, we discover that the bookers were seeing that we needed new blood in the, the matches. We needed new young faces, especially with TV going on. So that's when Fritz decided to bring in his three sons, Kevin, David, and Carrie, to start things off. And we will start with Kevin, who was a wild spider monkey, to say the least. One that wrestled barefoot. He was very intense. He was very crazy. Very snug, I guess, I guess you could say. He didn't mind hitting you in the nose, hitting you in the kidney, hitting you in the gut, whatever. He didn't care. He wrestled aggressively, and he breathed new life into the WCCW, which was drastically needed. Possibly Kevin might have been an MMA guy in another decade. Or he was MMA before MMA. Exactly. Because, yes, if you watch the clip, he does smack that dude with the bottom of his foot and that clap. <laughs> that noise is not fake. <laughs> I don't recall hearing him smack his thigh, but he popped the hell out of him. And then next, we had David Vaughn, Eric, who come in. And David come in and advanced really quickly on his own. By 1984, he pretty much gained his own image as a breakout star. He traveled a lot, and Ric Flair was chosen champion by the board of directors in the NWA. And David was going to take the title from him to be the next champion. They said that would have been huge of course it would have been for the promotion but also would have done a lot for david in general to get him i guess more recognition than he currently had i mean he was definitely the man in texas but he did go other places as well yes he was world traveler i guess you could say really quickly too since he adapted and he seemed to pick it up yeah, they had some of his promos in there for the most part they're pretty good i didn't think they were the best but compared to some of the other stuff that we've seen from this era they definitely weren't that bad. And then next up, we had Carrie Von Eric. Carrie just had the look. He just had that hero. I don't know if you want to call it a hero or what you want to call it exactly. But he just had that wrestler's look. Kind of reminded me like he could be related. He's not as big, but like a Lou Fregno. Yes. Doesn't really look like the other Von Erics as much. No, he definitely looked like a FedEx. Yeah. Definitely. He wasn't built like the other Erics either. No, for sure not. He's about twice the size of any of them. He was definitely bigger. His drugs will do that to you. Yeah, you can see why Vince brought him in. <laughs> oh, yeah. But Kerry was just as crazy as Kevin, just like his brothers. Not quite as aggressive, I don't believe, as Kevin, but <laughs> pretty rough. Very much a ladies man too oh yeah lots of stuff flying around yep. and then the next von eric to enter wrestling was mike von eric the complete polar opposite of carrie he was the opposite of all the brothers <laughs> <laughs> 
in my opinion, from just from what I saw, he didn't look like he belonged in the ring. I might have watched a Mike vs. Chris match in my day. Okay. <laughs> might have been decent. Might have been an interesting match. Yeah. Um, but being in the shadows of his brothers, having to carry that legacy from the third wheel, I guess you could say, he really didn't have the background or experience of wrestling like his brothers did. And Mike really didn't have that aggression, that really go out and get him aggression. He was really more passive. And he didn't have the shine that Kerry had. So he was really his own entity. He had to kind of had to make his own identity to them, unlike the other two Von Erics. He was just the right place at the right time for, hey, we need a third wheel. Let's get him. It's true. And any other promotion, yeah, he would just be a jobber at best. And from there, we move to 1982, where Fritz retired from the ring and decided to concentrate on his territory and getting more wrestlers, getting more people in to start filling slots. Youth think he went to the sunglasses after his retirement or before oh definitely after that was crazy stuff i just chalked it up to the piper thing that we saw with him and cindy lobber's studio and everyone wearing sunglasses that's the 80s that's what they did i wasn't really sure i thought he was blind there for a moment and then really dark shades on it's like oh god what happened to him skandar akbar blinded fritz no they never said anything about the glasses and just let it be Yep, just Fritz being Fritz. So I'll play ball. <laughs> and as soon as the Von Erichs started moving through, started getting a little more heat. Some of the bookers for the Texas territories would call out and reach out to other territories and say, hey, would you like to have Von Erichs in your territories? Because that's what you did. You were very uh, respectful of other people's territories and you just didn't come through their town unannounced. That was a big no-no. That was, you get shot or you'll lose a kneecap kind of thing. Just sleep with the fishes. That's what Hulk Hogan found out when Hulk Hogan come in was going to take the title from Holly Race. Harley Race come into Hokonga's hotel with a revolver and told him to try. <laughs> Harley's got a gun. So yeah, that was a big no-no. But moving back, nobody wanted anything to do with them. Everybody just shrugged them away. They were busy. They had other things going on. But little did they know, anywhere the Von Erics were, people were there, money was there, guaranteed sold-out arenas every time. Some of the other things they were talking about on here, Bruiser Brody coming in, and I liked his plan for saving money bringing in half a dozen cans of tuna with him. That was his eating thing with pork and beans. Said he saved about four to $5,000, I'm guessing, from his meal plan. Yeah, pork and beans and tuna. Oh, breakfast of Brody's. I wonder if he ate that all the time, like that's all he would eat? They made it sound like it, but maybe once in a while he'd spice it up and mix them together. We'll never know. Nope. Spoiler. The issue of drugs, they kind of just, eh, yeah, everyone did painkillers, which, I mean, from my understanding, that's probably pretty accurate but there was also a bunch of guys that were addicted as well and they didn't really focus on that too much just made it sound like it's something that everyone did and no big deal yeah that was well like steroids too everybody knew everybody did it and nobody really knew the consequences i object mike von eric did not ever do steroids oh of course <laughs> chris probably couldn't needle probably would have broke a bone or something if chris von eric tried to do it he had brittle bones brittle not to talk trash to people that can't defend themselves. <laughs> but yes, if I guess we didn't grow up in this era, obviously. Skandor Akbar was like, and if you mention Devastation Inc. to anyone, they know what you're talking about. I'm like, nope, didn't know. Sorry. No, I had to do a little research in myself to figure out exactly what in the world they were talking about. Of course, they were talking about tag teams. Yeah, those little stable guys. Then WCCW loved three-man tag teams crazy. It was good action, though. Not like seeing a triple drop kick. Yeah, it takes good timing for sure. Either that or just one guy hits him, the other guy's 
just kind of barely grazed. That's pretty much what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and they loved showing that replay of that one. It's like it's a terrible move. Quit showing it. It's, it's one of the end guys doesn't connect, period. But <laughs> you know what? It's for the show. But upon that, once they started seeing that the TV's ratings were high as they've ever been, WCCW started reaching out globally, which is something that no one had ever done before. And globally was Japan, Europe, overseas. They were starting to call out and see if they want some of the Von Erics to go overseas to make money. They said they were beating out Saturday Night Live's rating and they're in at high 25 countries and about 85 stations. Murder in Saturday Night Live. They also kind of said in the same area of the documentary that they kind of cheated to get high numbers too. He said he knew the tricks to make the numbers count double. So I think they said they were getting a 14, but he knew how to count double. So that would really be a seven. I think he said Saturday Night Live was getting like a four or five. So I don't know. I still support it either way. Yeah, it's still higher. It's just not as inflated as they originally report. That technology couldn't keep up with the numbers, but we were getting good camera angles. There you go. Highest rated syndicated wrestling show in the nation. And it was on fire. I'd say it was better than the NWO days as far as how popular and how banging they were. Uh, all the matches that they highlighted, they were pretty grabbing compared to what we watch on TNT that really doesn't have too much of a setup for 90% of them. We just, hey, this guy's fighting this guy this week. Oh, yeah. But usually on these WCCW ones, they actually have like a gimmick match to it or something of that nature, and it was just regular television. It wasn't a big super card yet. They weren't doing anything like that, but so far in TNT, we hadn't seen any gimmick type matches. Well, we found like, well, we don't know yet, do we? I don't guess the pose off. Yeah, we had a little bit of an angle with the pose off, but yeah, we found out the winner to that one was. We don't know! <laughs> the payoff. So moving forward, we move to the tragic day of February 10th, 1984, which is the death of David Von Erich. And controversy, controversy, controversy. David had passed away during his tour in all Japan wrestling in a hotel room. Probably should mention that he is not the first Von Erich to die, but they barely touch anything on the first one, which was Jack Jr., who died in 1957 at the age of seven, an accidental electrocution. Yeah. I kind of got a Tom and Jerry thing where Tom grabs the electric fence and you see the skeleton. Something about a puddle and a wire. I don't know. Might have lost Fritz some money in a fight or something. I don't know. It's possible. Yeah, just know they didn't touch on it that much. So we'll just report what we heard. But yeah, David Von Erich, sorry. No, that's good info. Heart failure due to his intestine swelling was the non-medical term. He was having intestinal problems before he left Japan. He decided not to go the doctor, which to our understanding could have been fixed with the simple probably antibiotic or something to get the inflammation down. And within two or three weeks, he would have been cured. But he decided to press on and go to Japan. They were out one night eating some sushi and that inflamed his intestines along with, I believe they said alcohol and some pain medicine was found as well in his hotel and they were all getting on the bus one morning and they noticed that david was missing so they went up to his hotel room and there they found him the b side to that story and the one that rick flair believes is that bruiser brody since first on the scene and friend to the family removed the drug evidence to protect the fritz von eric name so it's just a theory that's out there but yeah 
it sounds more intestinate to me. Yeah, I don't think he was druggy. I don't foresee him. And there's a lot of stress on him. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think he didn't really come off as a druggy person with, with everything, especially the scene he had with who was the glamorous guy? Gorgeous Jimmy Garvin. That's it. Jimmy Garvin. They had a little scene where David Von Erich had actually beat Mr. Garvin and Precious and he had him out at the farm digging post holes. Kind of remind me of a Dick Murdoch and Adrian Adonis scene there where Adrian Adonis had went down to Texas to find Dick and couldn't find him. Kind of had that same New York country, city boy, country boy vibe. I'm not sure where Garvin's supposed to be built from, but they're supposed to be Southern guys. No, Hayes was built from Atlanta, but yeah, who knows? Definitely, I'm too good versus I'm a blue collar worker. Definitely. And it was extravagant funeral session that they had. They had cops blocking every intersection on the way to the burial site. And I think they was noted that they expected maybe 300 people to show up for the funeral. And they actually had so many people at the funeral home that they had to put speakers outside of funeral home for the crowd because there were so many people there. Yeah, it was like a president died or a Dallas cowboy. It was uh, something to see, that's for sure. And like I said, they had cops blocking off every on-ramp and into the whole funeral procession passed. And once he was buried, it was noted that they didn't really have time to grieve. I think Kerry took two days to grieve for his brother due to the wrestling life. And they had to go to a main event. That was one thing that his dad had imprinted and pushed to them to say, you don't miss matches, especially main events. No matter what, you have to go to the show. The show must go on. Probably instilled from his dad. Definitely. And that is the death of the first Fun Eric. One and a half, I guess. Seven-year-old, don't count. Yeah. No guess. First full story we get, at least. And David's death, of course, is the main focal point for the documentary because it was probably the most impactful to WCCW as a whole. They had some footage of him just before he took off for Japan, and they aired that with Bill Mercer doing a last-minute piece at the end to talk of his death. And then Mercer and Mickey Grant, still in a state of shock, worked for about 40 hours or so to put together a tribute show for him. He's an old footage from his high school days playing basketball and things like that, along with, of course, in-ring wrestling and interviews. And they even got Flair and Garvin and Race and Michael Hayes to talk about how it would be different without Flair and how great he was and that he would have been a champion if he would have still been here. And of course, that leads to moving on to Carrie having to carry. See what I did there? I did. <laughs> the weight and we move into Ric Flair wanting to come into Texas to defend his championship belt against Kerry Von Erich instead of David who was supposed to win the belt originally and which Kerry would defeat Flair for the championship at the David Von Erich Memorial Parade of Champions another mouthful which then three weeks later Ric Flair got it back yeah, that's probably why they gave it to Kerry, not Kevin. He's only going to keep it for three weeks, so let's give it to this guy. Definitely. It was awesome about Ric Flair, because they were talking about money, and Ric Flair would have a $300,000 show, and he would take 13% of 300000 right off the bat. 3% would go to the NWA for expenses, etc., and he would get 10%. So for a week, while he was in that territory, he would walk away with $30,000. <laughs> 
which he did earn. He did draw the people. He did bring the butts in the seats, as they say. Or that just kind of give you a taste of flair money. Get well soon, flair. If he wouldn't have had all these divorces, he'd have a lot more money. Get well soon, buddy. Then he wouldn't be living his Ric Flair lifestyle if he didn't have divorces. I guess so. He would just be a limousine riding jet flying. He wouldn't be a kiss stealing. That's a good point. <laughs> so then we move on to Mike Von Eric, who had recently come across a shoulder injury. And so they had sent him back to Texas to get shoulder surgery and they used him for some promos. But during surgery, he had sort of infection in the shoulder. Toxic shocks, something. Uh, that sounds right. Toxic syndrome yeah. was the name of it. It was a disease that they got during the surgery that pretty much killed people instantly. Very, very few people survived. And actually, he survived it, but he actually had a fever of 108 degrees, which did a lot of damage to him mentally in his recovery. And you could tell. It's like, did he really survive it or was he just hanging out? He was there and body that was it yeah some of that footage they showed it's like uh this is terrible don't want to see anyone like that yeah lights on but nobody's on yes for sure well let's get him up there and have him do an interview bad idea come see me at the wherever i'm supposed to be and if you go there you'll see me good job mike it was bad (laughs) it it was hard it it was hard to watch well that was going on i believe we had a newcomer come in uh, gino hernandez gino did you ever see Tully Blanchard. Um, I've seen him, yes. But you ever saw any of his old stuff? Oh, no. Gino reminds me of a Tully Blanchard. He'd probably fit good in WWF. Maybe not as quite as big, but like a Paul Orndorff type, so maybe only if Paul left would he fit in better. This kind of remind me of a Paul Orndorff as well, but more so Tully Blanchard for sure. What's what I'd say Gino Hernandez reminded me of, even including the nose candy that he liked to do. Yes. Tully was also known for the book sugar. There was many people that said that he was a big cocaine user and was not shy about it, which is bad because when you got a young person with that much success, that much money, when you go to a party, you have that luxury at your feet. You know, you have the accessibility to the drugs, to the women, to the alcohol, to everything, and you end up getting turned upside down. And with cocaine, you don't ever beat it. It always gets you in the end, which we found out is the case in Gino's case on January 30th of 1986. And a little bit of controversy for that death, at least according to David Manning. Yes, there was some controversy as he would come in toward the last week, actually, of his life stating that he had gotten some trouble. He got into some things and he was actually scared for his life. People were coming, killing, essentially, and he'd ask Mantel if he had a gun he could borrow for protection while he was out. And when they found him, his motel room, uh, the deadbolt was not done and he was laid out and they claimed it was a cocaine overdose but for somebody that had a routine of always keeping their room clean uh, very organized they said that he would always come in his hotel room and lock the deadbolt which when the police got there the deadbolt was not done and the, it was a disaster area when they were showing so they are thinking that it was more of a murder more than an actual accidental overdose but they can't prove it so they're going with a cocaine overdose three times the normal amount to do an OD so the only thing I can envision to make someone do that would be like a gun to their head or something. It's pretty hard to get people to snort cocaine when they're dead. It's very true. But who knows? Maybe David Manning lives in a cotton candy gumdrop world and just has theories for everyone's death and not drugs. Yeah, it's not drugs. That's for sure. So moving on from Gina Hernandez, we go to February 20th, 1986, where having taken control of the NWA, the Atlanta-based Jim Crockett Promotions makes a move toward nationwide touring and expansion. 
unable to bring world class to Texas, world class pulls out of the NWA. Ooh, keep that extra 3%. Yeah. And on the summer of 1986, world class strikes a deal with ESPN for a one hour program on their station named the Legends of WCCW, which premiered that July. And we should mention that we also covered on our Black Saturday special that they also got a nice little TBS deal back when Vince was doing Black Saturday and trying to take over Georgia Championship Wrestling. That also was a big boost to them getting TBS recognition and stations. Most definitely. So moving on to the fall and winter, October of 1986, Kevin Von Erich wins the WCWA World Championship. Fritz wanting to stay in Texas instead of growing the business around the world due to his honor and the old way of doing things. The stars would move on to WWF and to other NWA, other territories that were doing more things for their wrestlers and getting more viewers and more people. As stars moved from Station 39 and Studio 11, the viewers would hop channels to TBS and to the other channels, the bigger channels, hence where their stars were. And the local stations and the areas in Texas would start losing viewers, start losing money, and eventually headed toward a collapse. Yeah, some of them went to UWF as well, like Chris Adams and Ice Parsons, and they were also on the TBS station. So eventually we have Ken Mantell, he leaves for Bill Watts to the UWF, and in the very same year, Kerry Von Erich is in a near-fatal motorcycle accident. He would not return for a year and a half. Kerry ended up injuring his foot, almost losing it completely, but they were able to repair, as you could say. <laughs> Delay. <laughs> Delay the inevitable long enough yeah. to actually keep his foot but ultimately he had to have his right foot amputated and he wore a prosthetic which was a fact that was not released to the public yeah side note my independent wrestling boss did not believe me when i said that i was like no he didn't like dude why would i make this up so yeah even people that used to watch him all the time just yeah never thought he ever wore that nope. used to shower with his boots on from what i've heard no one thought that was weird <sighs> yeah. of course in april of 1987 a world class rating and attendance have pummeled. Mike Von Erich is showing the long-term effects of his bout with toxic syndrome. Mike Von Erich, the rest of the world, was more than Mike could carry on his shoulders and on his conscience. So eventually one day, he took some pills and some alcohol with a sleeping bag out camping and killed himself. We know this because there was a suicide letter that was left, but again, it was never made known to the public. Yeah, they went on for some shows afterwards. Like, oh, we'll tell the public after these shows. Again, because of the main event, the he didn't want bad publicity before a main event. So therefore, they kept everything hush-hush until it was over. So I'm starting to see a pattern. Yes. Main events before bros. Yes. And now we come to our closing segment of this. Between 1986 and 1988, several renewed attempts were made to return world-class international stardom. Fritz had pulled out a world-class completely, selling it over to Kevin Von Erich, which due to to the many failed attempts to renew and revitalize World Class, they failed to merge with AWA. And shortly after that, Kevin Von Erich sold World Class Championship Wrestling to Continental Wrestling Association owner Jerry Jarrett, who renames it the USWA. And we talked about that during our territory talk for the USWA. Kind of starts putting everything together in one little neat little boat. Yep, tying up all the loose ends. They go on to talk about how many people have died during the promotion. Some of them was a little bit fabricated, saying they were cursed. Junkyard dog died in a car accident. He fell asleep at the wheel. I don't call that cursed. And some guys were actually 
heart failure and things like that. It's like, it's not really a curse. One guy on there, I saw the age 65. I'm like, really? Curse didn't really buy into all that. 65, he beat most of the people. Exactly. He got, <laughs> must have been a job or a part-time or something. I don't remember the name that was attached to it, but yeah, I said, blah, 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 age 65. Like, mm-hmm. old age for that time? Come on. How's he cursed? And then we have an incident. We had a very ugly incident. What the hell's wrong with you? That's open-hand He's all right. He's just sleeping. Didn't want to make a separate incident for this. I figured I would just throw it in as part of the WCCW timeline. Hidden Easter egg. Proceed. All right, ladies and gentlemen. First time ever. An embedded incident scene. We have Bruiser Brody in 1988. Future. He had originally had an incident or more of a rib, I guess you could say, with one of the referees in Puerto Rico. And once he left the match that he had completed, the referee had actually set him up to be killed after the match while he was in the showers. In the showers, there was a big wall that led up into the showers. And they say that there was a guy behind the wall waiting for him to go into the shower. And there in the showers, he was tragically stabbed. And by the time they found him and tried to get him out and up and into help, it was too late. There was just too many people there and not enough time to get the needed medical assistance. Uh, to this day, the person that did it still walks the streets. He's still for that company. And a lot of wrestlers do not go back over to Puerto Rico for that very purpose. Yeah, only in Puerto Rico. I don't think that would fly too well over here. No, definitely not. So after Bruiser Brody, we're going to jump forward to 1991. We have Chris Von Erich finally cracking, unable to carry the Von Erich family name due to severe asthma. Causing multiple failed attempts at his wrestling career, he dies to a self-inflicted gunshot wound, and he was only 21 years old. After that, we have Kerry Von Erich, who was addicted to the pain medication. Kerry Von Erich is arrested in 1993 for forging prescriptions while on probation for cocaine possessions. On February 18th, expecting prison time, Kerry drives to the Von Erich ranch. He finds the revolver that he gave his father for Christmas two years earlier, heads into a field on the ranch. He is found later that day by Fritz dead by self-inflicted gunshot wound. It's a Bon Jovi shot. It's a shot to the heart. In 1997, Fritz von Erich is diagnosed with terminal cancer. Cursed. And he finally passes away. Finally? Yeah. Eventually. Finally's right. <laughs> finally sounds like, God, are you up already? You're outliving your kids. What are you thinking? <laughs> And it's noted that 1984 death of David Von Erich is considered by many the end of a world-class era and the downward spiral for the promotions and their stars. Get some bonus content if you want. Oh, yeah. Mr. Fritz got divorced. They barely talk about his wife at all in this documentary, but she divorced him like it was five years before he died. So that was kind of weird. Married 42 years and then decided to divorce him and then he dies in five years. I bet she feels foolish. Yeah, I bet she probably wish she would have stuck it out, or at least maybe until the cancer got real bad and he started pointing guns at her as well. I don't know. That's a possibility. And then we have Kevin Von Erich walking through the sportatorium one last time before they demolish it. That was awesome. I liked doing that. The very first time I saw that, it's the only thing that kind of got me to choke up a little bit. Just them reliving the, the glory days there and a little final montage at the end. Yeah, it was a tearjerker. That's for sure. Like I was telling John all fair, I think the one line that, that really kind of 
that gets to me is the fact that you know it's sad to look back and say I was once a brother and now I'm not knowing that you've lost all of your family and now you have nothing a divorced mom I guess but as far as your brothers you know your blood brothers you have <laughs> you have nothing you have nobody to go to all you have is videotapes of what was I guess all you can do really is I think he says he's got two boys yeah two boys Marshall and Ross and stay with them and do the best you can with them that's the only thing you can do Marshall and Ross have been in your favorite and my favorite promotion TNA They wrestled in like 2004 or something for TNA. And so now this is daughter Lacey Von Eric, but she retired in like 2010. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. His boys could possibly one day come to WWE. I don't know what they're doing now. I think the latest one was TNA or Impact, as it's now called. But I'm not sure if they're wrestling for any other big promotions or even want to come to NXT and work their way into WWE. That's a lot of think about. That's for sure. I know you'd like to see them come and break out the claw <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. try that nowadays <laughs> they would not understand but wrapping up the documentary it was a lot better than I thought it would be and it really the documentary the way they've done it really kind of makes you think about family and think about how lucky you if you do have brothers or sisters how lucky you are to have them yeah me and my sister watch it every Christmas there you go <laughs> Yeah, it's a good documentary. I like it better than WWE's just because when the sportatorium footage, by the time the WWE got around to filming theirs, it was already gone. It wasn't in there anymore. And then they actually had most of the players in the game interviewed for here, where the WWE one only had ones that were still in the WWE, but they did have Kevin because he signed a Legends contract since they got him in the Hall of Fame. And I think they had Michael P.S. Hayes, but they didn't have Scambar and they didn't have Gary Hart. I don't even think Gary Hart was alive when they came out with theirs. And of course, they didn't have Chris Adams or anything like that. I mean, this one didn't either, but I should probably mention, yeah, Chris Adams also dies. But yeah, I like this one a lot better, even though it's probably twice as long as the WWE's. If I could combine them, it would be perfect, just because the footage and the production value, WWE, hands down. Brian Harrison obviously doesn't have that kind of money, but the this one has better content. Yeah, it's raw. For all the listeners, I would like a Von Eric album for Christmas. If you don't know what I'm talking about, watch the documentary. Or Google. Either one. You'll never find it on Google. <laughs> I don't know, you probably will. Put it on Google, it don't exist, okay? <laughs> it's, like it's a weird album to put out. I think they added their own game, too. It's a side hobby of mine to look at wrestling board games every now and then. And I think the Von Erics had their own game. It wasn't called the Von Erics, it was WCCW board game. Interesting. Yeah, it was most board games back then were cheesy. You would have, like, the sorry game board pieces for your man or whatever, and then it would become like a card game of chance or what's the other one in Monopoly. Yeah, those are the main ones. Yeah, it's just two different cards and you just like throw them down. That was your move or whatever. They were pretty big. Would have been nice if they could have lasted into the mid-90s or maybe just before the Attitude Era to maybe earn some kind of publicity, a cartoon or something to try to get a younger audience. But alas, most of the wrestlers had moved on and the ones that were still there were no longer packing the house. This brings us to our side production, our dessert to the main course. Ooh. ESPN 
30 for 30 short of Von Erich's Wrestling the Curse. This came out in 2015, I believe, and it was basically a follow-up in a way because at the end of the Heroes of World Class, they tell us, and Kevin plans on moving to Hawaii. And in this one, Kevin's in Hawaii with his family. That's where he lives now. Helped him mellow out and enjoy the scenery and get away from the haunting fields of Texas and the constant reminder of what all went down there. So they sum it up with a lot of the similar stuff that we hear in the other one. It's kind of the cliff notes for the Heroes of World Class. So if you can't find it and just are interested, yeah, just watch this one on YouTube. You'll get the gist of it. And some of the stories were a little bit more in depth. I don't know if it's from Brian Harrison's editing or if maybe just Kevin felt in a better place and wanted to share some more details on stuff that he did in the documentary. But yeah, it was a lot more in depth on some of the stories about his brother. And you get to see his kids growing up and how bad Kevin has aged, unfortunately, since the last documentary. Yeah, he's aging bad, but at least he's here. Yeah, still here. <laughs> That's probably the most important part. At least he's here. He can actually tell the tale. True, true. Painful as it is. Yes. Speaking of pain, you want to review the historical facts of the 1980s? Let's review the historical facts of the 1980s. So in 1981, I saw the worldwide invasion of the Japanese electronics, like the Sony Walkman. Did you ever have one? I didn't have a Sony Walkman. I had the knockoff. I think I've, my first one was a Sony Walkman, but it definitely was not a cassette player. It was just a radio. It was okay. I had a knockoff 8AA cassette player. Eight. Eight. I bought it from Radio Shack. We were so freaking wasteful. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. I can top that, though. I think it's also Radio Shack. This thing took... I want to say 60 batteries plus either four or two double A for the clock display. It was just a double tape deck radio player and it had a digital display where you could save your favorite stations and set the clock. I think you could save like five stations on there. But yeah, that thing was a battery monster too. I still actually have it. I just don't know the brands in the living room. Yeah, mine had eight double A's. It was a portable Walkman. Yeah, this was portable too, air quotes, but it also had a plug, which I used a lot more than I used the batteries because, yeah, that was ridiculous. I guess if you had to pick it up from one room to the other, it's considered portable. <laughs> yeah. All right. Still got it, but yeah. Moving on. A 12-year-old has figured out and also dissected the Rubik's Cube. He wrote a book on how to solve it, and it turned out to be the bestseller for that year. Simple times. And we had Dallas Season 4. Wow. It uh, May 1st, 1981, it debuted at number one, and it had a 27.6 rating, which was the highest back then. Take that, WCCW. Killing it. Mom loved that show. It was her favorite nighttime soap opera. And move on to 1982. We had a much smaller and cheaper electronic gadget, the first CD player. Which no one could afford. Moving up to 1984, the Summer Olympics are held in Los Angeles with a notable absence of the Soviet Union, who announced their boycott of the event a few months before. Which the Olympics are coming back to Los Angeles in 2022, I think. Okay. Somewhere around there in the 20s, 20s. Not the next one, but the one after. Maybe we'll see them. I doubt I'll be in there, but yeah, if it's on TV, I will see them. Definitely. At least some of it. Occasionally, maybe. This was also a significant year for gamers as Nintendo had released The Legend of Zelda in Japan. Yes. I was never a big Legend of Zelda person, but I'll probably get all kinds of... 
I know it's a beloved franchise. It's just uh, not my type of game. Yeah, I'm not either. I like games, but not to that extent. I just didn't do it for me. It was cool that it saved your place. I think it might have been the first game that did that. <laughs> so you actually just turn it off and start back where you started mm-hmm. at last time. Yep. Or had checkpoints. It wouldn't be exactly where you left off at, but it'd be in that vicinity. Which I was good with that. Yeah, that was groundbreaking. Close is better than not at all. Yeah, better than leaving the Nintendo on for eight hours where you go somewhere and then not try to come back to play it again. And it's flashing with that little screen. Or to find out one of your parents turned it off because, oh, you left it on. It was on purpose. But you burn a hole in the carpet. Oh, yeah. Well, that was a great trip through Texas. I know we had planned to do a big Texas special, and it is done. Done, 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 done. Yeah, like five people got that reference. But yeah, that was Texas. Next up for us, we're going to try to do an end of season TNT1 award show where we basically just review season one as far as what we liked what was funny what was we can't believe they put this on there and things like that there'll probably be a shorter show i'd imagine but who knows i don't want to say it's going to be 30 minutes and we make it go two hours and 40 minutes and it turns into a Here's a world-class documentary. It's true. And maybe even a special announcement for season two, but no promises. You have my attention. (laughs) Jeff's being replaced by Bosley. What was that? Oh, um, nothing. We will see you in season two, and it won't be anything that drastic, but hopefully we'll have some news for you. If not, then we'll at least share what we hope that we'll be doing for season two. We're kind of on someone else's time frame, so if we don't have it, maybe we'll just tell you our plans. Yeah. What do you want? You keep touching my leg! And with that, we want to thank you for listening to the Tag Team Podcast. Thanks for downloading. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your friends of your family, tell your family friends to download, download, download. Thank you for listening to the Tag Team Podcast. Join Jeff and John on their next episode for the end of Season 1 of WWF Tuesday Night Titans Award Show. I want to go home. You can't go home. We got to do this.